The huge sums of cash Congress allocated for pandemic unemployment assistance went a long way towards staving off an economic collapse during the worst days of the pandemic. But the huge surge in claims through state unemployment agencies also highlighted weaknesses in the system, weaknesses the Labor Department is now trying to help states fix. Michelle Evermore is Senior Policy Advisor on Unemployment Insurance at the Department of Labor. She talked with me about some of the efforts now underway with the help of about $2 billion in grants under the American Rescue Plan. I certainly want to spend the bulk of our conversation today talking about some of the modernizations and improvements that that y'all are making to UI, but I I thought you could start us out with just a little bit of discussion on what the challenges the pandemic exposed really were. I mean, were, were they... Were they known issues that were just kind of highlighted by by all all the all the extra things that were happening during the pandemic, or were there new issues that surfaced? It's really a combination of both. Um, so prior to the pandemic, I ha- I had actually written a paper saying that states weren't necessarily ready for a recession, but that was largely about benefit amount and access to benefits. And so what happened during the pandemic is Congress last March in March of 2020 past benefits that would expand the number of people who were eligible and dramatically expand the amount of benefits. So those two problems were were somewhat taken care of over the course of the pandemic with obvious lapses in 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 some some coverage and a lapse in the federal pandemic unemployment compensation for a few months in the fall. But by and large, those those issues were covered by Congress. Um, what we did find is problems with technology and some of the issues that states had established to control access to benefits and, and make benefits a little bit harder to access, those did actually present problems for claimants getting through the line during the pandemic. But you know, one thing we really couldn't um, have planned for is the massive fraud rings that came in around last May um, to attack state systems. And um, you know, in general, Fraud is is somewhat of a problem in unemployment insurance, but but not the hugest problem. Um, but these coordinated attacks were truly unprecedented, and the kinds of attacks that states weren't prepared to deal with. And did that become a problem? We think just because criminal syndicates recognized the large amount of money that was suddenly available. Or, or talk about why that became a problem, and some of the things you're doing to solve that from a cybersecurity standpoint. Sure. Well, there were two problems that there there were two issues that that led to criminals attacking the system. Number one. Uh, you know, I, I suppose having a larger benefit did make the system more attractive. Number two, um, the requirements to get pandemic un- unemployment assistance are different than the requirements to get unemployment insurance. So in order to get PUA, um, there's not necessarily an employer check. So claimants did not have to necessarily verify their earnings to get the minimum uh, weekly benefit amount under pandemic unemployment assistance. And so that made it a little bit easier to establish a, a weekly benefit amount. And the other thing was just uh, the, the challenge of dealing with the crush of new claims um, left every system vulnerable to any kind of attack because you know states were so concerned with paying out benefits um, in, in as timely a manner as possible. And, and those systems were crashing that that creates a vulnerability in and of itself. Um, so to, to, to set up sort of an understanding of how big a change this was for states, um, the middle of uh, March last year, there were 3.3 million new seasonally adjusted claims. 
And the week after that, there was 6.6 million. And the week after that, there was 6.6 million. And the week after that, 4 million. It was over a million new claims a week for more than 52 weeks. By way of comparison, the highest week of new claims in history was 695,000 in October of 1982. Um, So states were seeing a tenfold increase in new claims. At the same time, you know, they'd come off historically low unemployment rates, which also meant that their administrative funding was at a 50-year low. So they had historic low administrative structures to pay out historically high benefits. Um, When that happens, something is going to break. That all makes sense. But but to some extent, I can sort of imagine Congress and policymakers making a rational calculation here that the, the most important thing at the moment is not to prevent fraud. It's to keep the economy from crashing. So it's OK to have fewer checks in place for a while. But what can you do long term with some of this funding from the American Rescue Plan to stabilize some of the estate systems, make sure they are more cyber secure for the sorts of benefits that are going to continue over the long run? That's a really good point. You know, when the CARES Act was passed in, in March of 2020, I think a lot of people assumed that this this uh, pandemic would be a real problem for up to a few months. Um, I don't think anybody anticipated that we'd still be dealing with uh, an, a new surge um, in the pandemic in August of 2021. Um, and so, that, yeah, this wasn't designed to be a long-term economic stabilizer. And so, you know, certain risks weren't necessarily envisioned. Um, but now now we are where we are and we know the things that we know and there are a few things that we can do to help out. Number one, the, the department has entered into a blanket purchase agreement with certain ID verification vendors. The Continued Assistance Act signed in December um, required identity verification for, um, for pandemic unemployment assistance claims. Uh, there are several vendors out there in this space that are that are um, helping states to perform identity verification. So um, that's that's one route. Another route is, you know, essentially the problem in, in many ways is that unemployment insurance is a 53 state system, and with that brings 53 front doors for um, criminals to test. Um, I, I, I sometimes compare this to, you know, velociraptors uh, t- testing a fence. You know, w- once they find, you know, one spot to get in, that that is a breach. And the problem is, so once the once the criminals get into one state system and that state system figures out where they're coming from and figures out how to lock them out, well, they can just move on to the next state. And you can't take the same team of people that locked the criminals out of one state and, and bring them into the next state and have them fix the problem there because with the 53 state system, there are all different technologies uh, in place in every state. And so every state's operating on a different system. One thing that can help to begin to deal with that problem is more central technology solutions. And so one of the things that we're investing in with the funds that were provided um, in the American Rescue Plan Act is starting to develop central modular IT solutions for states. We're, we're currently in the, the research phase on this project. It's gonna take some time and some effort, but giving states a way to share information across states and a, and a central solution that can be updated as the identity of the criminals is updated and as the tactics are updated, um, ha- having a central solution to that would ulti- ultimately be a helpful thing. In the meantime, however, 
you know, there's, there's also short-term solutions, right? And so an, another effort that we've launched is um, these tiger teams. So we'll send teams to states that include fraud experts, ex equity experts, people who know how to make pe push people through a queue. And um, they, they are charged with both eliminating backlogs and also promoting equity and fighting fraud. And a, a lot of those things um, can happen all at the same time. A lot of the backlogs are fraud related at this point. So figuring out how to better identify the fraudsters and help the innocent people get through the, the line um, accomplishes all kinds of things at once. Do you have any sense yet for how receptive state officials are going to be to really these two main things, the centralized technology solutions and the tiger teams? Because especially with the, the centralized technology, it's only helpful if states actually use them. So what kind of carrots and sticks can you put in place so that they do get employed? Or do you feel like you even need to do that? Well, um, we, we have the capacity to deploy tiger teams in six states at at a time. We had no problem getting volunteers for the first six states. We already have a couple states volunteering for the next round of uh, technical assistance. Um, I think I think states, when, when, um, when I first started at this job, uh, we had a big meeting with, with a number of states. And, and so this is very responsive to the things that we've heard that they need. And that is just, just more, uh, more help, more sharing information across across state lines, more sharing of um, the lessons learned. And so I think that, that both of these efforts are, are popular there. So we already have six states participating with the Tiger teams. And another incentive for states to work with these Tiger teams is there will be grants available. Once the Tiger teams identify uh, potential solutions, there will be funds available to states to implement those solutions. So it's a win-win for states. Not only do they get somebody to help them figure out how to make things operate more efficiently, but then they'll get the money to implement those solutions. So I think that that's very attractive to states. Um, with regard to the technology, we already have had nine states volunteer just for the research phase. Um, there will be several other stages, stages. But again, we've heard great interest from states in central solutions, or at least at, at the very least information sharing about how best to modernize the technology that they currently have. Having said that, there, there is an actor in the space already doing a lot of work on this front, and that, that's uh, NASWA, the National Association of State Workforce Agencies, and they do a wonderful job. I guess the thing is scale. Um, it, there, there's just so much to be done. You know, applying these $2 billion in resources to, um, to serve that purpose is, is necessary. We've spent most of our time talking about technology improvements here, but I, uh, before we let you go, I wanted to bring up the equity grants as well, because there's a pretty healthy chunk of money there also in the American Rescue Plan. What what do we know about racial disparities, ethnic disparities in the UI system, and, and what at this point is the thinking on, on how to address them? Well, I have to say that's part of the problem. Um, a lot of the data that we have about disparities um, it, it's just not there. We don't necessarily have data disaggregated by race, gender, um, disability, English proficiency. Um, and so I think maybe step one is figuring out how to measure that. You can't manage what you don't measure. You know, I think that that's issue one. I do know that, um, you know, the GAO has issued some preliminary findings that there's definitely disparities in access. We know that there's disparities in um applier in non-filer rates, people just plain don't apply because they don't think that they're going to be eligible. 
And we know that states that have the um, lowest replacement rate and the lowest recipiency, that is the number of unemployed people getting a benefit, um, those tend to be states that are the most diverse. So, you know, just just looking at demographics on a macro level, you can you can get the sense that uh, recipiency of unemployment insurance benefits is unequal across racial lines. Yeah, also, surveys of, of recipiencies th throughout the pandemic also demonstrate that black workers had a much harder time getting benefits than white workers, for example. Um, so we have some data. We need better data. And hopefully these equity grants will start to help us begin to measure the problem so that we can manage it. Um, these are very flexible grants for states to employ. They will come to us with a plan about areas of access that they want to address and ways that they want to address them. And we'll work with them to figure out allowable uses for the for this grant funding. Michelle Evermore is Senior Policy Advisor on Unemployment Insurance at the Department of Labor. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.